You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2011. Today's episode is titled Healthy Families, Critical to Success in the Workplace. One of the common assumptions in today's culture is that human beings can live bifurcated lives. That is, a person can be a great worker, but yet live a private life of sin. It is believed that a person can compartmentalize life so that dysfunctionality in private life does not impair work. This belief is inconsistent with the testimony of Scripture. Create an organizational culture that faithfully supports and invests in the families of workers and associates. Be diligent to hire workers with biblically healthy families or those whom you can train to practice a biblical worldview of family. Recognize that any worker who does not personally practice biblical values and principles in his or her family life will be unable to work at full potential. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Biblical Worldview of Family. Well, good evening and welcome to our class tonight on the Biblical Worldview Applied to Family. Hope you've been enjoying the Worldview training. And just to remind you of where you've been and where you're going, um, you're down uh, down about lesson number nine here. Uh, the last five sessions are the application where we're trying to take biblical thinking into how we live, which that's where the rubber meets the road. That's that's where reality is. So hopefully you've learned a lot about how to think biblically. You've learned something about how the world is thinking. And hopefully you're seeing that you don't want what the world you know, offers. We want, to work, we want a biblical approach to life. So tonight we want to talk about the family, which is the, really the fundamental building block of any culture, any society. It's, it's basic to everything. Now, we've, we've separated it from work, for example, and public policy or government, but the reality is you're never going to have healthy work environment without healthy families. And you're never going to have a healthy public policy without healthy families. And if you're a student of the news today, you know that the family in the United States is under attack. In fact, what's going on in the United States, what I can tell, is pretty much going on worldwide. Um, I saw this when I went to Switzerland some years ago. Um, when I got there, I uh, started you know, finding out what the issues were. Uh, and Switzerland does have some interesting issues. For example, one of the things that they're working on right now is plants' rights. Are you familiar with that? Plants' rights. Yeah, where plants have rights. When you have a when you have a non-biblical worldview, then you can go pretty much anywhere with your ideas because you have no reference point. So, if you have a non-biblical worldview, you very likely would assume that all beings are equal. So human beings are on the same, have the same standing as plants. So if human beings have rights, plants have rights. And so that's what's driving that. And uh, I don't know exactly where it's gone. I haven't seen anything recently, but it's, it's been a big move afoot for some time. But when I was there back in 2005, it was interesting. The big issue that was going on was the whole, whole gay agenda. That was becoming a huge issue there. They were getting ready to have a referendum uh, dealing with some gay topic uh, a few months after I was there. So it was. It felt very familiar to me because we're having the same issues here that they're having over there. So it really doesn't matter where you live. We're going to be influenced by pretty much the same way, the same kinds of issues going on worldwide. So family worldwide, a biblical view of family worldwide, in my judgment, is under attack. 
And so we want to talk tonight about some of the things that are going on, some of the trends. And then we want to talk about a biblical view of family. Now, for some of you, uh, you may be very well versed in some of these topics. So I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of First Peter or Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter says these words. He says, I know that you are, you know these things. In fact, you're firmly established in them. Nevertheless, I need to talk to you about them again. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk to you about them again. So hopefully it'll go deeper, more profoundly, and maybe you'll hear some new insight in this whole issue. Well, first let's talk about the five jurisdictions. Um, we want to set the context for the family discussion in light of the, all the five jurisdictions. <clears throat> Basically, the family is one jurisdiction. To me, the seminal jurisdiction is the church. Now, I'm not talking about local churches. I'm talking about the universal church of Jesus Christ, which exists at all times and all places. It consists of all people who have ever professed Christ, whether they are still alive or not. So this is what I'm talking about when I say church. And we know a good bit about the church. The scripture says that Christ is the head of the church, which figuratively, metaphorically, is his body. Scripture says that Christ is the focal point, the, the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so the head of the church has all the wisdom and knowledge of the universe that anyone would ever need to do anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Christ is the starting point. Scripture tells us that uh, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. You know, when I went to university and um, went through my programs, I was seeking truth. What I didn't know was many of the people teaching me were naturalists. Now, you remember what naturalists are? They're people that believe that the only reality is the natural reality. There is no intangible spiritual reality. Therefore, there is no God. Because if God exists, he would have to be a spirit being. They know that. So a naturalist is an atheist. They were trying to teach me what they perceived to be truth independent of the creator of that truth. And you can just see that the logic of that it just is mind-boggling. Why do you think that you can teach somebody truth and ignore the person that defined that truth? It makes no sense at all. It's illogical, but they didn't see it that way. Well, the, the, the foundation of the truth in our, in our culture today, and really for all time, is always Christ. And the church should be the repository of the revelation of Christ that, that then is fed into all the other jurisdictions so they can do what they're called to do. And finally, the scripture, of course, is the greatest revelation that we have about Jesus Christ. So as we take the scriptures, and just look at this text in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. It means it's inspired of God, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, most of us, when we think about... Um, you know, being righteous, we don't think about needing to be rebuked. We don't think about needing to be corrected. Well, we need those things. Now, when you are correcting your children or rebuking your children, that's no big deal. You know you need to do that. But even as adults, we need that same thing. So Scripture is designed for this purpose. And the purpose of this training is that you may be 
a man of God, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that word work there is referring to whatever God has called you to do. Whatever work assignment you have. Bruce at IBM, he's called to be at IBM, that's his good work. The Greek word there for work is ergon, that's his ergon. And good is an attribute of God, so he's supposed to go and do his ergon consistent with the character and nature of God, and to prepare him to do that, he needs the word of God, the scripture in him. So the repository of this wonderful revelation about Christ that enables us to live life well should be his church. So the church then should be teaching us individually how to live and how to walk with God as families, in the workplace, and then in public policy. I had uh, lunch today with a young man that, I say young man, he's younger than I am. So anybody that's younger than I am is a young man. Okay. And he is uh, he's a salesman. So we were talking about a particular sales conundrum he has right now. And um, he was perplexed by it. And I said... Have you prayed about it? And what do you think you said? No, not really. I mean, he kind of had, sort of had. I said, well, if you were in the context of your local church and some issue came up, what do you think the people that in your church would do? What would they do? Well, they would start praying about it. But if you're in the context of business and an issue comes up, what do you think about doing? Well, you start brainstorming and trying to come up with strategies. But you only don't pray, do you? You see, we live differently outside of what we consider to be our churches because we don't think biblically in all areas of life. So the family is an area of life that we need to start thinking biblically in, bringing biblical truth to bear in how we think about families and how we operate as families. Well, let's talk about some trends. These are just some, some of the things that are going on today. Um, this is percent of the population here. And then uh, the question is, what percent live alone? What percent live as homosexual couples? What percent live as heterosexual couples and are cohabiting? And what percent are heterosexuals married? Okay, so we've got four categories. All right, first one, what percent living alone? You're looking at a little over 25%, but notice it is a growing percentage. Percentage of homosexual couples is still very small, but it is growing. Percent of heterosexual couples cohabiting. Well, that's growing. Right now it's still fairly low, but it's growing dramatically. The percentage of heterosexuals that are married, as of the when I made this, made this uh, chart, it was around 50%. I recently saw a number where we now have that number under, under 50%. So that is a declining number. And these other areas here, which there's nothing wrong with this, but these, these two areas here, which is the homosexual couples, the heterosexual cohabiting, these are unhealthy practices for a culture. Those unhealthy practices are growing. How about this one? The 45-plus, that would be most of us, except the ladies, of course, <laughs> who believe non-marital se uh, sex is wrong. Okay, that is, that is sex outside of marriage is wrong. What percent? Well, in 1999, this is percent of the 45-plus of, uh, the crowd, you had over 40% believed that sex outside of marriage was wrong. In 2009, that number was half. 
So you can see in 10 years what's happened there, the shift that's going on. All right, this is about divorce and infidelity. So uh, this is the percentage of the population here that, uh, that you know, are, are basically your probability of getting divorced based on the percentages of population. And you know that number is around 50%. Basically, half of every, you know, one out of every two marriages winds up in divorce is what that, what that says. Then you have unfaithful emotionally. That is, you're in a marriage, and maybe you haven't had a physical affair, but you have had a, an emotional affair where you've had an unhealthy soul tie with some other person. That percentage is a little under 40%. Then unfaithful physically, we've actually had a physical affair with someone else. That number is over 40%. And then the number of marriages where one of the spouses has been unfaithful. Okay, that percentage is well over 60%. And then unfaithful men who get caught. When you look at the whole body of men that are unfaithful, what percent do you think get caught? Well, nearly 80% get caught. So that creates a lot of turmoil in a culture. There, there are very few people, you know, even the most decadent people, that, that don't value uh, fidelity in some level. Now, there are some that, you know, it's not a problem. But the vast majority of people, they want fidelity in their marriage. Now, here's uh, some stats about uh, some things that are going on. Number one, cohabiting couples with children. Uh, children who grow up with biological parents. And in high schools that don't teach the Bible. Three interesting little topics here. First one at the bottom, cohabiting couples with children right now, it's about 40%. Now, the problem with this is that these are very unstable homes since the breakup rate of cohabiting couples is double the divorce rate. In other words, the divorce rate, you know, is, is approaching 50%. Cohabiting couples have, a, have a, almost a 90 or 100% probability of breaking up. The reason for it is there's no real commitment. Cohabiting couple, cohabitation is not about commitment. It's about avoiding commitment. So what happens when the stress comes on the relationship? I'm out of here. That's what happens. So when you've got children in that environment, there's no stability in those homes. Children who grow up with biological parents. What percent of the children out there grow up with biological parents? Well, believe it or not, it's still around 60%, but it is lowest. This is the lowest number in the Western world, and that number is declining. That number is decreasing. Finally, high schools that don't teach the Bible, this probably won't surprise you, basically... About 80% do not. Now, what's interesting is that the college professors, the liberal college professors, are beginning to raise a stink about this. And the reason for it is, they, is that most of the literature that we have is built on biblical analogies. If you don't know the Bible stories, then you won't understand the literature. They're finding that most of the college freshmen coming in don't know the Bible stories. They're not being taught them. They don't, they don't attend churches that teach or don't attend church at all. And the schools don't teach it. They're not taught it at home. So they come in and you start talking to them about Daniel and the lion's den or David and Goliath or Noah and the ark, you know, or, you know, or you know, Saul, the king, or just any one of the myriads of biblical stories. And they don't, even, they don't know what you're talking about. In fact, I understand that somewhere around, there are somewhere around 75 or 80 
metaphors that are rooted in, in Scripture that are widely used in the literature that people need to know if you're going to read the literature well. So these college professors are complaining about the lack of biblical literature. Now, they're not complaining because people are not Christians. They're complaining because you don't know the Bible. So these are some of the trends that are going on today. <clears throat> now I want to talk about fathers and the influence of fathers. This is some recent data. I literally got this yesterday, and I just dropped it in here, so it's fresh information. Now this is a question about how fathers influence church attendance of children. That is, children grow up, and adults, uh, and then do they go to church regularly, or do they go to church irregularly, or they don't participate? Those are the three categories. And in all three of these cases here, the mother is a regular church attender, the father here is regular, the father is irregular, or the father is not practicing. So those are the three options. So the data is just looking at the practices of the father here. The mother is a non-factor here. Now notice what happens if the father is regular. Okay, then the children as adults that are regular is over 30%. Okay. About 40%, over 40% are irregular, and somewhere around 27% are not practicing. Okay? Then if the father's an irregular church attender, look at where that number goes. Boom. The regular church attenders go way down. The irregular church attenders go way up. And the non-practicing goes up some. Then if the father is a not, not practicing at all, the mother is a regular church attender. The father doesn't attend at all, ever. In that scenario, the children that are regular as adults goes, goes down even more. The children that are irregular, that actually drops some because the children that don't practice goes up a bunch. So you notice how whatever the father does, the children do. You see that? That's the power of the father. Now, that's, just an, amaz that's an amazing reality. Now, I'm going to run the risk of offending some of the ladies. But I want you to know what I'm going to show you now is not, it's not for me. Okay? So this is just data that I got from a report, a study that was actually done. And the question here is what happens when you have the mother is the variable? Okay? The father is a regular church attender. And now you have three scenarios. The mother is regular, the mother is irregular, or the mother is not practicing. So what happens to the children? You know, well, first of all, and we're just looking at the regular church attenders. This is the data point that you saw on the other slide. A little over 33, 30, uh, 33% when both the mother and the father are regular church attenders, about a third of the children will be regular church attenders. Okay. Now what happens if the mother's irregular and the father's regular? Now you would expect that to probably go down, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you expect that? Well, it doesn't. It goes up. It goes up. And then what happens if the mother is not practicing, but the father is a regular attender? What happens then? you expect that to go down a lot, wouldn't you? It goes up. What this is saying to the researchers is the father is the primary influencer on the future spiritual, you know, practices of the children. The mother can try as hard as she wants, but when you have a father that's not walking with God, it has incredible potential detrimental impact on the children. 
much more than the mother does. Now, why is that? Maybe, maybe it's part of the, of the fall, because there is a curse on the woman and a curse on the man. There are different curses that are given as a result of the fall. That could be the explanation. I don't, I don't know. But the important thing, I think, is to see it's really important that fathers take their jobs as fathers very seriously. You have tremendous impact over your children in ways that you probably don't even understand. Okay, well, let's talk about a biblical definition of marriage. This is important because the world is continually offering a new definition of marriage. In fact, we're debating marriage now, trying to decide, does marriage include any two people that want to come together and be in marriage? Is that, is that true or not? Well, the scripture gives us a definition of marriage. And it, it makes it clear, I think, consistently scripture, this is the only definition of marriage. This comes out of Genesis 2. And I'll just read this text to you. You're familiar with it. I will just remind you of what you already know, because you need to be reminded. Okay? I'm going to be very, very much like Peter. So if you don't like that, just you don't like Peter. So deal with it. Okay? Okay. The Lord said this. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. This was the first work assignment that man had, naming the animals. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. We're about to have the first surgical procedure. The anesthesia has been administered. By the way, this is the text that inspired the man that actually developed anesthesia. Okay, just side point there. It's interesting what you can be inspired to do when you start focusing on Scripture. Okay. And by the way, another side point. I have to resist this, but i got to tell you this one. You know who one of the first persons that received surgery under anesthesia was? The Queen of England. One of the first. And all her advisors told her, don't do it. Don't do that. That's, that's dangerous. It's witchcraft or whatever. And this guy came in and explained, no, here's what it is. This, this is the way God made the universe. He points her to this text and says, surgical procedures can be done and they can produce good results. So she submitted to it and she, uh, she was healed through that process. So... <clears throat> So the Lord God caused the woman, the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he, he took one of the a man's ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought, it to the man, he brought her to the man. The man said, now, now he's continuing on with his naming thing. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. See, he's describing the woman. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. For this reason, now we have the definition of marriage. Because of the way God's universe works and how God created woman, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father. Now, did Adam have a mother and a father? No. <laughs> he didn't. So now he's given us a maxim here. It's like he's waxing eloquent here. Now let me draw a principle out for you. Here's the principle, you know, that in the future, 
my heirs, this is the way it will be, that you will leave your mother and father and you'll be united to your wife and you will become one flesh. So this is now the biblical definition of marriage. It's reinforced by Jesus and other New Testament texts. So this is biblically the definition. There's no other definition that I could find, and I have no biblical authority to offer any other definition. So bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man for this reason. Based on how God's universe works, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So what's the purpose of marriage? What's this all about? Why would we need marriage? Well, we have a mandate that we were given in Genesis chapter 1. When God created the universe, and, and on day 6, when he creates man, he tells us why he created man, why he created us. And we all know this. He created us to rule. Notice it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This is probably a reference to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, or are communing together and having a conversation over a cup of Starbucks coffee. Okay? And they're saying, let us make man in our image. That is, man needs to be like us in certain ways. Now, the theologians uh, try to explain this, and one of the terms that they use is they, they, they divide God's attributes into communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. So an incommunicable attribute is something that is not passed on to man. But a communicable attribute is something that is passed on to man. So that's a pretty simple distinction. So, for example, uh, God is infinite. Well, that's an incommunicable attribute. But God is also good. Well, that's a communicable attribute. Okay? You say God is omniscient. Well, that's an incommunicable attribute. Well, uh, man, uh, can't, you know, God is love. Well, that is a communicable attribute. Okay? So you can see as you go down the various attributes of God, you can see which ones are, are clearly not something that man enjoys and which ones can man enjoy. The ones that man can enjoy are part of the image that we have of God. So in our, he says, let us make man our image in our likeness and let them rule. We're here to rule. Now, let me just make a little comment about that, if I may. With all due respect to the people, they're into the Seven Mountains thing. In fact, I got a little piece on that today. The Seven Mountain thing is, is, I think it's an okay thing, but it isn't really tightly biblical. Because what they're talking about there is spheres of influence. And certainly we want to be influencers, but more importantly, we are rulers. So rulers operate in spheres of authority. So a better model, in my judgment, is to think about spheres of authority. Where's God delegated authority? Sam, you have two children. Why is it that you have authority over your two children? It is because God has given you that authority. He made you the father, and now you are responsible to him for how you raise your two children. And that's true of all of us. That's how... Parental authority works. It comes from the father. How about workplace authority? If you, if you are a manager or you start a company, you know, where did the authority come from? It comes from the father. Hebrews tells us that there's a builder of everything, 
Everything has a builder, and God is a builder of all. In other words, it doesn't matter what organization you're part of. Ultimately, God is the originator. Now, the organization may be very dysfunctional. It may be a lot of sin going on there. That's just rebellion in God's world. But still, God ultimately is the one granting the authority. Romans 13 tells us all authority comes from the Father. All authority. There's no authority that doesn't come from him. Even dysfunctional authority. And God uses dysfunctional authority to accomplish his purpose. So rulership is the reason we're here. We're here to rule all of God's creation. And what's happened is we had what we call the fall. And what the fall did, it did not change this. It made it more difficult. The challenge of ruling is more difficult. And so we are still here to do originally what we were called to do. Marriage is one of the key elements that enables us to do it because it's not good that man be alone. And so we need to be married, and most people are. And I realize there are some that have the gift of being single, and that's okay. That is a legitimate gift. But most are called to be married, and by that, and that married couple now forms the unit that, need, that you need to do what God has called you to do in the creation mandate. So this is where marriage fits in. Marriage provides the resources that we need spiritually, emotionally, intellectually to help us do what we're called to do. Now, interesting, uh, if, you've, if you're familiar with Jerry Tuma, he's a local financial guy. He's written this book, Boom to Bust. And in this book, he makes this comment about the economies of the world that prosperity, that is, that is uh, wealth as we know it, physical, tangible wealth, and success in the tangible realm, is associated with growing populations. And depression is associated with declining populations. Well, you notice the creation mandate is about, it's about expanding. It's about be fruitful and increase the number, fill the earth and subdue it. It's growing. It's, it's multiplying in number and moving across the planet. You see, Adam and Eve started in one place called the Garden of Eden, somewhere in the Middle East, probably. And now they were charged to reproduce themselves, and these people were supposed to now cover the earth and subdue it and rule it. So God's system is designed so that if we want to enjoy success, we have to follow his rules. And his rules are we've got to grow and increase and master his universe. So that's the mandate we're under. I've got a question. Can, can you hold that to the end? I'm recording this, and I'll, I'll talk to you at the end, okay? Okay, now, marriage is a sacred covenant. Now, notice that I put in there holy matrimony. Did you know, we're all familiar with the marriage ceremony. We've all been to weddings, and you've heard the, heard the vows and all that. Where do you think that came from? It didn't come from the Romans. They had no concept of, of marriage being a sacred covenant. They would not call it holy matrimony. They had no concept of, of vows for one another. In the Roman culture, women had no rights. The men had to promise the woman nothing. The woman was do nothing. If the man got upset with his wife, he could kill her. Or if he didn't want to kill her, he'd just throw her out. And she would be destitute because she would not be allowed to travel. She would not be allowed to have a job. She would not be allowed for anybody to help her. What do you think would happen to her? It's over. It's just a slow death. Well, see, it's Christianity that brought in 
the reality that marriage is a covenant. Now, notice this text in Proverbs chapter 2. It said, this is a, a personification of wisdom. So the text reads, wisdom will save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth, referring to her husband, and ignored the covenant she made before God. Her marriage is a covenant before God. That is a Christian concept. It is not, there's no other worldview that has that concept. So Christianity has elevated marriage to, a, to holy matrimony. God has acted. He has ordained that the two come together. So you and your lovely bride, you think that you chose each other? No. Guess what? We <laughs> the Lord puts you together. He puts you together by his sovereign pleasure, and now you are married, and you are under a divine contract. Okay? That, that's what makes marriage so holy and distinctive. You know, 50 years ago, it was, it was virtually impossible to get a divorce. There was, there was no such thing as no-fault divorce. If you were going to get a divorce, there, you could get a divorce, but you had to go through great effort to, to convince a judge who was thinking biblically, far more biblically than they do now, that, you know, show me a biblical reason for you to be divorced. Don't just tell me you're not compatible. Don't just tell me you don't like each other. That's not, that's not good. Give me a biblical reason and wh why I should grant you a divorce. That was a totally, they had a totally different mentality. Today, you don't have to give a reason. You don't like, you don't like each other? Fine, get a divorce. And that's, that's how people think. I, see it, I hear it in the context of the Christian community. Oh, you guys can't get along? We well, all just need to get a divorce. No, you don't get a divorce. That, this Marriage is a holy covenant. The marriage covenant is divinely ordained. Matthew 19.6. So, Jesus says this, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. It's a very serious thing for people to go to divorce. Now, I know some of you may be divorced, and there are a couple of reasons why divorce is okay. But most of the time, other than those two reasons, you need to be extremely cautious about divorce. Now, here's the reality about what marriage is. Marriage is incredible divine favor. A wife is an expression of God's favor on the man. Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now, men, when you get up in the morning and your wife is not quite in gear, you need to remind yourself, favor from God. This is favor from God. And get really thankful. That'll help you deal with whatever's going on. Okay? It's a good thing. I mean, we need to take responsibility to always see our wives as a gift from God. Treat them with respect and dignity and honor. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You see, marriage is divinely instituted. I'm amazed over the years that I've worked with people and all kinds of scenarios. I'm amazed at how every marriage that I have ever seen, if you can get past the sin, you can see they're perfectly suited. 
They're perfectly suited. Now, what gets in the way is sin. Sin can really gum up things quickly. But we've got to grow in Christ and get past the sin where we can really see the, the wealth and the treasure that God gives us when he gives us our precious wives. Now, there's a tremendous impact of sin on marriage and on life, period. And this is the record of the curse that was pronounced on Adam and Eve, who are our ancestors. And what was in Adam and Eve now is on us. So when he's talking here about the curse that came on them, this is the curse that's now on us. So he says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire, and that word there, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that, it means a longing will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So here's the curse on the woman. It's basically issues with childbearing. Childbearing will be more difficult. And there is now an inclination to your husband which makes you more dependent upon him than you originally were. Now, I think that there's a, a positive side to this curse that most men don't recognize. You see, it says there, your longing or your desire will be for your husband. Here's my thesis. Try this on. I think that if a man truly loves a woman sacrificially, now, you, remember, love scripturally is not referring to sexual love. Okay? It's referring to sacrificial actions that are in somebody else's highest good. I love Paul okay, by doing things that bless him and bring alignment with the will of God in his life, and I pay the freight. Okay? That's what agape love is. I think that's what he's talking about here, is agape love in Scripture. So if I love my wife, agape, sacrificially, she cannot resist it. You hear that? She cannot resist it. Because the longing there is to me. Which means, it doesn't matter what the conflict we might have, we can resolve it. Because all i got to do is love her. Love her sacrificially. That means... In virtually all situations where there's marital conflict and they're talking about divorce, it doesn't have to end a divorce. The man has the power to restore the, the marriage if he chooses to walk that road. Now just think about that. I think that's an implication here of this text. Now on the man, here's a different curse now. Because you've listened to the wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Now, please note, note he, he didn't curse work. Many people think work is cursed. And so, since work is cursed, then I don't want to work, so I need to go be in the ministry. And we, we have all these people running around trying to be in the ministry to avoid what they think is a curse. No, the curse is on the ground. The ground represents the place, the environment that we work in. So cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, which means there will be manufacturing defects. Thorns and thistles represent manufacturing defects. 
and you will eat the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. In other words, you're going to have to work. It's going to be difficult. Ruling God's planet has just got a lot harder, but you're still supposed to rule the planet. So the curse on the man is different from the curse on the woman, but now this does impact marriage. This is now going to create a challenge for them to live under the curse and still do what they were created to do. So the responsibilities of marriage. First of all, you have a husband. He's charged to love his wife. This is the agape love, sacrificial actions, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What did Christ do for the body of Christians that we all enjoy? He died. My wife really really got, got this one year, and, and ever since she got it, she reminds me that my job toward her is always to die. It's a continual, she's like Peter. You know, I know you know this, but I'm going to remind you. You need to be reminded. You need to die. So uh, she's very, tr- very correct. I need to do that. So <laughs> I'm attempting to learn how to do that. So this is our responsibility to die to our agenda, our flesh, our desires, what we want so we can truly serve the will of God in our spouses. Likewise, the wives, their job is to submit to the husbands. Now, this word submit is a Hebrew word. It's a compound word. It, it means to place yourself under. Hupo tasso. Hupo is under and tasso is place. So it's to place yourself under. And so it's the sense of recognizing this is a divine covenant called marriage. God has ordained it. So I am placing myself under this man because God has ordained that I do that. So it's a different way that women should be looking at the covenant of marriage. So wives are responsible to submit, which is to place themselves under. Husbands are responsible to die to serve to the wife. Fidelity in marriage. Fidelity is a sacred thing. Just look at some text here. This is out of Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will adjudge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. All the sexually immoral. And there's all kinds of sexual immorality, and we know in our culture it's becoming rampant and decadent. Physical fidelity is sacred. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, please know this. We're not talking about a works method of salvation. We don't seek to be righteous to gain standing with God. We seek to be righteous because we have standing with God. That's the difference. The Christian gospel is when you come to Christ, you now are a follower of Jesus Christ. So your job is to obey him. And he is all about righteousness. And so he's described, Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 6, unrighteousness. He's saying these things here regarding sexual immorality have nothing to do with Christianity. Christianity is about God's standard of ethics. And God's standard of ethics does not include sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, male prostitution, 
homosexuality, and on and on and on. These are things that are inconsistent with what God has called us to do. Then you have emotional fidelity is sacred. Notice Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said that you're not to commit adultery. Of course, that's in the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, this is Jesus talking, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, that's an emotional affair. That's an illicit emotional soul tie that we're, we're told, do not do that. That is inconsistent with righteousness. Now, you see, I've got a couple of names here at the bottom of the page. You may or may not be familiar with these companies, but these are companies that exist today. And they've been around for about a decade. And I first became aware of, of this company, Ashley Madison, maybe a year or so ago. Uh, my wife and I were sitting in our den, and we had the TV on, and a commercial came on. And uh, I normally ignore commercials. We mute it. But for some reason or another, it wasn't muted. And this commercial came on. And when we got through with the commercial, I said, what? <laughs> you know, one of the, what did I just hear? And so I told Carol, I said, hand me the controller. Got to be real nice. Please, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so we have the ability on our controller to actually go back. So I, I fast forwarded back and played that commercial. It was an Ashley Madison commercial. It was a commercial promoting affairs, adulterous affairs. Ashley Madison is a company in the business of selling adultery. This is a company that last year, I believe their revenue was $60 million. I believe they have like 100 and some odd employees. I think their pre-tax profit margin was $20 million. Adultery makes make a lot of money selling adultery. So this is now sin is being promoted legally by companies. Now, this is not new. I mean, we've had gaming and tobacco and alcohol and all kinds of, you know, even prostitution. We've had all kinds of things going on. But this is kind of a new level of it. We're selling adultery. Now, Alibi Network is a whole other scenario. Alibi Network exists to help you lie. It doesn't matter what is it, whatever lie you want to perpetrate, they can help you do it. And it's all legal. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, I could tell you stories about this. I mean, I saw a Fox, a Fox News reporter interview an executive with Alibi Network one day, and, and you could tell this news reporter was not liking this assignment. And so she's talking to another female who is an executive with Alibi Network, and the, the news reporter says, uh, well, how do you feel helping others lie and deceive? And the executive says, well, they're going to do it anyway. All we're doing is just providing a service for them. We're just helping them. We're just serving them. We're blessing them. And the reporter says, well, um, so you help people, uh, you know, conduct rendezvous, and, and they keep it from their spouses. Yes, we, we do that. We do all kinds of Whatever it is that you need to, to hide or deceive someone about, we can do it. And so the reporters, you know, get more agitated. And she said, well, what, what, what about if your sister um, calls in and, 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 or, and uh, 
or, or your, sister, your, your brother-in-law calls in and wants to deceive your sister and have an affair. Would you help him do that? He said, well, we, 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 again, we're just a service. We would help them do that. Then, then she said, well, what about you? What if your husband calls in and wants, wants to deceive you and have an affair? Well, then she gets a little testy here. <laughs> it's now getting kind of personal here. But this, this again, is, it's just amazing watching the interview to see how that woman executive with Alibi Network was just in, totally insensitive to lying and deception being sent. That was not on her radar. It was just a, lying and deceiving is just a choice. And it's okay. You want to make that choice? That's fine. We have a service to help you make that choice. And so that's the culture we've got going on. And marriage fidelity is going right out the window. Now, divorce. Let's talk about divorce for a second. Now, I'm going to give you a maxim. You know what a maxim is? A maxim is something that's generally true. So something that's generally true means that there can be exceptions, correct? Okay, so here's, here's the maxim. The maxim is that divorce is not permitted. Okay, and I cite this text in Matthew 19, referring to, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Matthew 19, verse, uh, verse 6. So that, I think, is the maxim. That is the general principle. Now, there are exceptions. And let me just cite two exceptions that, that I see in Scripture. Maybe other people see others, but I see two exceptions. And in dealing with, you know, being a church leader for a long time and dealing with people on these kinds of issues, I have run into both of these situations. Okay, the first one here is marital unfaithfulness. Matthew 19, going on in the same text, Matthew 19, verse 9, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it appears that there is an allowance here for, for marital unfaithfulness. If your spouse you know, commits adultery against you, then perhaps that is a basis for divorce. I, that's not an automatic basis, but it may lead to that. And I think as a Christian leader, I you know, would look at this text and perhaps find some support there. I say perhaps because I am always reluctant to encourage anyone to have a divorce. Now, I realize that there are some really bad situations out there where people are emotionally and physically abused, where, where women's lives might be at threatened, they might be at risk. There's some bad stuff out there, and those have to be handled very carefully, prayerfully, de delicately. But I think generally from a principle standpoint, I try as much as possible to avoid counseling anybody to ever get a divorce. Now, the other exception here is the unequal yoking that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. And basically, the principle is this. If you have an unbeliever and a believer married, okay, you sh the believer should try to stay in the marriage. If the unbeliever wants out, then the believer can't let the unbeliever out. So it says this, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to peace. So that seems to be a possible exception there, that if two people are unequally yoked, the, believer, the unbeliever wants to leave, then the believer is free to let them do that. So these are, I think, the tenets of biblical thinking about divorce. The divorce rate among Christians is the same as non-Christians. 
I think it's pretty well known. That's not any new information for probably most of you. But that's a sad testimony to the fact that the Christian community doesn't think any different from the world. If we really thought differently, we had a biblical worldview, then our divorce rate would be dramatically different from the unsaved world. Well, family. The family is the most basic unit, economic unit, designed by God to fulfill the creation mandate. That is to rule by multiplying and subduing. We multiply, that is we grow, and we subdue, we master God's creation. So the foundation of a man, of family, is a man and woman united together in marriage. And this, again, is the text of Genesis 2 that we read before, where, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That is the family unit now from which children come, and now if this family becomes a tool to, to obey the creation mandate. So the family is the primary place for impacting generational transfer. Notice Psalm 71. The psalmist says, Since my youth, O God, you've taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation. Before we started, we talked about some of the companies of the 20th century that many of you are familiar with. And as I've studied these companies and the founders and all that went on, the thing that I have found consistently is there is not a profound understanding of generational transfer, of taking a spiritual heritage and passing it on well to the next generation. So this is the psalmist is really declaring the value of this. He really is resonating on the importance of declaring the power of God to the next generation. I want to give, give all that I have to the next generation, all that God has put into me. So the family is the starting point for this generational transfer to happen. Now, one of the problems that we have in parenting today is that we don't think biblically about it, and so we give in to the world's ways. And one of the world's ways is to tell your children things like this. You can be anything you want to be. Now, probably most of us have said that to our children at some point, and maybe we didn't think about what we were saying. And when you say that, you are communicating something that may I suggest, is at best misleading. At worst, it's an outright lie. Okay, And the reason it's an outright lie is that you can't be anything you want to be unless what you want to be is what God has called you to be. That's the only way that can be true. So a chief role of parenting is to begin to train the child in the way he should go, the way God designed that child to go. The way, the purpose for which that child was created. So the role of parenting is to discern the will of God in the child and train the child to do the will of God. So how do we do this? Well, here's some examples of what you do. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 to 12, where Paul is talking about how he related to the Thessalonians. And he uses a family metaphor here. He says that we were gentle among you like a woman, a mother, caring for her little children. A mother is one who is nurturing, who is encouraging and supportive, who's gentle and kind. That's the role of a mother. Now, a father's got a different role. 
for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Now you see that word urging there is the Greek word mastigo, which means to scourge. Okay? So part of what the father does is discipline. The, the father sees the destiny, and he calls it out, and he says, I don't care what it's going to take. I'm going to help you do it. I'm going to train you to do it. I'm going to coach you. I'm going to push you. I'm going to do whatever it takes so you can do what God puts you here to do. And it's all about living lives worthy of God who has called you in his, his kingdom and his glory. You see, God has created each one of us for a purpose. That's his specific will for us. And the way we run our race, we fulfill our purpose, is we have to walk in a biblical worldview to do that. So I refer that to that as the doing the will of God according to the ways of God. So you may have heard me say that phrase. That's what I'm referring to. You, God has a will for your life, and he has biblical ways for you to execute that will. You've got to know both. So one of the things that I teach in the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar is the biblical principle called C4. This is how you discover specifically what you are called to do. Psalm 139 verse 14 says this, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. Now this word here that says wonderfully made is the word that means to distinguish. You see, each one of us is made with distinction. We think of a distinguished person as somebody who's famous, you know, a politician perhaps, or an entertainer, or, you know, somebody that, like Dirk Nowitzki, he's, a, he's somebody that would be distinguished. But distinguished is a term that applies to every one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. God made you with distinction. And he has a call on your life. And what will you have to do if you want to live your life well, obediently to God, is go discover what it is he's called you to do and go do it. So that's the role of parenting. Parenting is about helping children find their C4 and then develop that biblical worldview so they can go and execute what God called them to do. Now, education. Now, one of the things about education today is that uh, and we're... We're on the home stretch. Got a few more slides left, and then we can have some questions. But one of the things about education are the assumption today is that education is the purview of the school or the state. That is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says education is the responsibility of the parents. Education begins in the family. A biblical worldview of family includes educating your children. Parents, not the government or the church or the school, are responsible for the education, training, and discipline your children into their God-ordained life purpose. And my, most of you know that my wife is an educator, and she uh, has been in education a long time. And she is noticing a distinct difference in parents today than 10 and 20 years ago. Parents today are much less responsible for their children's education than they used to be. In fact, when I remember growing up, 
you know, I, I, was, I went to the Richardson Public Schools. That's where I was educated. And I remember that when, if I did anything wrong and the teacher had to communicate with my, my mother and dad, my mother and dad believed the teacher. They supported the teacher. That doesn't happen anymore. Now if something happens in school and the teacher want, needs to talk to the parents about this, the, the parents believe the child against the teacher. So it's creating a very difficult scenario for teachers to be able to help the parents because the parents, whether they realize it or not, are responsible for the education. All the school is is a tool to help the parents. That's all it is. Uh, I, I've had a chance to do biblical worldview of education for uh, my wife's school a couple of times, and this is one of the big points I make. And this is one of those points that I can tell when I'm making it, it's just going right past them, right over their head to the back wall, and it just drops because they do not get it. So my wife has to continually, in meetings with these parents, remind them. Do you remember when we talked about responsibility of education? Well, I say I vaguely remember. Well, if you'll remember what was said, it's your responsibility. We are simply a tool. If you choose to use us, we are delighted to serve you, but you must use us properly. You cannot use a hammer as a saw. You cannot misread, misuse your tool. You have to use your tool properly. To us to serve you properly, you must be equally yoked with us and support us and, and trust us. If you don't trust us, then we can't help you. So why would you be having to have those kinds of conversations with people that profess to be Christians? It's because they think like the world. They don't think biblically. Scripturally, the parents have got to step up. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is how you train children. Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. You know, the word impress is an imperative if you're going to impress somebody, you're going to get their attention. If you want to impress somebody, you're going to push on something. You're going to press in. You're going to stress. You're going to figure out ways to get their attention. You know the old commercial like where they come up and slap somebody and say, thanks, I needed that? Yeah. We need a lot of that going on. We need to impress our children. Talk about, talk about them when you sit on, at the home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. You're talking all the time about the Lord and how his universe works and why we're here and what God has called you to do and what you need in place for you to go do that. This is a continual conversation about biblical worldview. This is the way the home should live. You should, you should be looking at everything your children are seeing and experiencing and giving them a biblical perspective of whatever it is they're going through. Tie them, referring to the commands as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, put verses on your refrigerator, put them on the door, on the windows, and the picture frames, whatever. Everything should be speaking of Christ. Several years ago, a couple that um, we had spent a good bit of time with ministering and serving uh, left Dallas, and when they left, they... Uh, they gave away a lot of things. 
And they gave us a couple of things. And one of them, which I really treasure, is a picture of a shepherd beside a stream with his sheep. And we have that mounted over the fireplace, the most prominent place in the home. Um, And every time I look at that, it makes me think of them and reminds me of how we shepherded them, how we helped this couple when they first came to our life group some 12 or 13 years ago. They were a broken couple. But when they left, they had a lot of health and healing, and they were moving forward in the Lord. And so it just it's a, to me, it's a great picture of the reality of what we're trying to live in. We're trying to shepherd people into the reality of walking with God and walking in a biblical worldview. Well, we should have these symbols all around us. We should be continually talking about it. My wife and I, uh, we walk as much as we can, and when summer comes and she doesn't have the this normal school schedule, we get up early and walk. We're going to walk early in the morning about 6.15. If any of you all like to come join us, you're welcome to come. Uh, it could be quite entertaining because I'm not a morning person. So you might see how I do talking about biblical worldview at 6.15. It's not as easy for me. But fortunately, she is very knowledgeable and very alert, and she can talk. She can carry the conversation quite well. But we talk a lot about Scripture and how to walk this out. We are trying to live out the reality of this, even though our children are grown and gone. We still continually talk all the time about a biblical view of everything. Now, what about work and public policy? For those men who are, who are married, excuse me, a typo there, the quality of the marriage impacts your communication with God and therefore your effectiveness at work. Now, listen, pay attention to this. This is 1 Peter 3, 7. Now, this is the King James Version. I, I think it's a little awkward at points, but it, it conveys the sense of the verse, I think, better than the NIV does. It says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according, referring to the wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, I mean, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about this text. I'm going to resist that and just focus on the end there. Now, everybody here, all the men, do you all work? Does everybody work? Okay. Okay. If you work. Now, do you think it's important that you have a healthy prayer life at work? Yeah, you better think that because it is. If you can't commune with the Father at work and get revelation and insight from him, then you are, you are limited, very limited in what you can do. I was talking to the gentleman today at lunch, and he was bringing up this sales problem he had. My first question is, have you prayed about it? Well, he just kind of brushed me off. Oh, yeah, yeah I prayed about it. Yeah, well, okay. Well, who have you prayed with about it? Have you brought it to Marketplace Prayer, for example? That's one place you could go and pray with it. Is there somebody else you're praying with about this? Well, the reality is he hasn't really prayed about this. Because, you know, he's kind of maybe... A little bit. But, I mean, seriously sought the Lord on it? That's that's just kind of off the grid because we don't think that way. Work to us happens in the natural. And we have a hard time seeing how God is engaged. Well, here's the reality. Whatever's going on in your work, it doesn't matter what it is, it's a divine setup. God is right in the middle of it doing his will. And unless you know how to discern what he's doing and line up with him, you're just going to live like the world. 
you're going to make lots of mistakes. And a key way that you must live to keep the channel of communication with the Father going so you can live well at work, not to mention every other area of life, is you must live well in your marriage. You don't live well in your marriage, your communion with the Father is going to be cut. Now, I don't know what they're teaching over there tonight, but this would be a great thing to teach. Because there are a lot of people in this body right here that have major marriage issues. There are people that in this body that believe that their marriage is not relevant for them to do what God's called them to do. Well, I try to point them to this text. They're not very good listeners. I said, well, just listen to what Peter says. Peter makes it quite clear. If you don't have a healthy marriage, if you don't really know your wife, you don't know her emotionally, you don't know her spiritually, if you don't know her, her heart, her, her passion, her desires, her likes, her affinities, you know, the way she learns, the way she likes to communicate, the way she processes, all these things there are to know about her. If you don't study her and get to know her, you're not going to dwell well with her. And it's not going to go well for you because you won't have good, a, good prayer a good communion with the Father through prayer. If a healthy and well-managed home is a key qualification for church leadership, wouldn't this be a wise criterion for business leadership and public office? Now think about this. This is the text, 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, which gives us the qualification for elders. Okay? Now, it is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. And then it goes through a series of other traits. And then he goes on and says, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So here, the qualification for leadership in the church is the marriage. It's the family. It's the home. That's what you look at. So if that's true in the church world, perhaps that's a good practice in business. Would you think? Perhaps? You know, there are, there are other very successful businessmen that figure this out. Ross Perot, for example. I was having lunch a few years ago with one of his key executives. And we were talking about a biblical worldview of work. And uh, this man was a Christian. But you could tell he had not had a lot of training in this area. He didn't really know a lot about it. So we're just talking. And in the course of talking about this, he all of a sudden kind of set up in his chair. And you know when that happens, there's something's good getting ready to happen. So he said, you know, I just figured something out. I said, what would you just figure out? He said, well, you know, Ross had a practice. And the practice was that if he ever found out that anyone committed adultery, they were fired on the spot. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, what was his reasoning? He said, it was very simple. He said, if they'll betray their wife, they'll betray me. I thought, wow. Pretty profound thinking for a man that I don't know if he knows the Lord or not, but that's pretty profound thinking. You see, he made the connection that whatever you do in one area of life, you'll do in every area of life. Because we are holistic beings. 
So if you run your home well, then you're qualified potentially to run the church. And you would be potentially qualified to manage a company or a department. How many of you hire people? Anybody hire people here? If you're put on your list, you know, the health of the marriage is one of the criteria. I only hear, hire people that have healthy, godly marriages. If you did that, you would really bless yourself enormously. So marriage is critical to communing with God, to conducting ourselves in, at work and in public policy, doing everything we do. Okay, takeaway here. Biblical worldview of family is this. Marriage is a divinely ordained institution. Fidelity in marriage is a sacred obligation. It's not an optional thing. The family is the basic unit designed by God to fulfill the creation mandate. And the foundation of family is a man and a woman united in the divine covenant of marriage. And the purpose of parenting is to impart biblical worldview to their children and call the children into their C4 destiny. That's what parenting really is. May the Lord give us grace to grab these truths and to walk in them faithfully. Father, we thank you for our study tonight. We thank you for the biblical truth about family. Grant us the grace to grab hold of this. Grant us the grace to walk in it, to be willing to be counterculture, to do what you have created us to do so that we can truly be salt and light. We can be the examples that you called us to be. We can be testimonies that our lives can be preaching righteousness by virtue of how we live. So grant us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.